everyone, and welcome back to the Talk of Fame podcast. I'm Connie Martini. On today's episode, is very meaningful to me because I'm actually interviewing my cousin. This is actually, I think, is our first time meeting one on one. I think, right? Ironically enough, yeah, it's our first time meeting one on one. Uh, you know, I'm up in like the Wooks Bear Scranton area, like here and there for family gatherings. I think we're like second or third cousins, but the power of like 23 and me, you know, the great yeah. genealogy work that like, you know, some of our family members do. It's, it's great. You know, seeing you face to face first time we corresponded like a little bit, like here and there, you know, trading mm-hmm. likes on Facebook. Um, but yeah, it's great to meet you. It's great to be here. Uh, I've been really impressed with, you know, your podcast thus far and I'm honored to be a guest. Thank you so much. Timia as well. Like he's an, you're an NFL and I am IL agent. And you're also a payment entertainment attorney. Like, like how did you go to college for basically an attorney and um basically an agent? Or did you kind of like minor those type of things? Or so for me, when you go to law school, you don't have to major in any one specific like thing. Most people major in political science or philosophy something that involves a lot of like reading, writing and analysis of what you're reading and writing. Mm-hmm. Um, but theoretically, you could go to law school if you're a biology major. In fact, a lot of people do that. Um, for me, my first start into like what I wanted to be when I grew up was to be a rock star. So mm-hmm. I was in my own band. Um, I played in several different groups. And I was lucky enough that one of my bands started to draw a little bit of interest. So we would go and we would tour we would play you know new jersey connecticut we had offers all over to play we were signed to a tiny smaller record label for a little bit that put out our demo and then a larger label came calling around and we were presented with a contract that us being naive 19 20 year olds we didn't quite understand what we were being willing to signing away Lucky for us, which is not the case for many musical artists, we had a connection to a lawyer who graciously reviewed it for us. You know, we gave him a little something, something to do it. And even though that that lawyer was not uh, specializing in entertainment law, he informed us that it wasn't a great deal. We would be giving up a lot for not getting a lot back. It wasn't a great deal for us. So we ended up not signing it. And from there, I kind of thought to myself, well, if this rock star thing doesn't work out and I still want to stay involved in the music industry, I would like to be a lawyer. I would like to be able to read these contracts, read these agreements and help artists get off the ground. But um, from there, I'm majoring in college and the rock star dream, as you might guess, did not work out. And I could not really continue it myself because I don't know how to write songs. I just play drums. Mm-hmm. Um so I decided to go to law school for that. Um, I had to study for what's called the LSAT. It's just like the SAT, but specifically for law school. Um, so I studied for that exam. I took that exam. And then just like you apply for college, it's essentially graduate school. So you apply, you get in. Um, and luckily enough for me, uh, I went to the great Temple University here in Philadelphia, where I still am today. And so in order to practice law, I had to do both college and law school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then once you complete law school, you have to take the bar exam, which allows you to practice in certain states. Each state has their own different bar exam that you need to pass. They run an ethics and background check on you to make sure that, you know, if people are putting their legal needs in you, that you're uh, into your practice. I mean, um, 
that you're a trustworthy individual, that you don't have any outstanding like issues with finances, because you hear a lot of times, unfortunately, about lawyers misusing their power to steal money from clients to get people in bad situations. So in addition to passing these exams, you know, the bar exam, you also have to pass like an ethics and background check. So that's how I became a lawyer. Um, that was a bit difficult because I graduated in peak COVID. My last semester was when COVID first started in March 2020. So I have, you know, in my graduating class, we have the unique distinction of for a lot of people, we were the first people to take the bar exam online. Now, mm -hmm. it's such a major test that people have to be wary about cheating. Um, so there was a lot of different things. There was a lot of confusion. It's never been done before. So what I thought was going to be a test I took in July, I nobody could end up taking it until October, which, of course, delays your legal career. When you're in between law school and studying for the bar, you're oftentimes not working because studying for the bar is it's such a comprehensive test. It's not just on one area of law that you want to practice like real estate attorneys, people who want to be real estate attorneys uh, have to learn about stocks. So I had to learn about everything, whether it be like corporate law, stock law, you know, securities and exchange commission stuff, uh, criminal law, civil procedure, you know, how you initiate and finish a lawsuit, the rules of how a lawsuit works. Uh, you know, I took the exam, I passed that. And then to be licensed as an NFL agent, the players union, the NFLPA, the union that mm -hmm. represents the collective interest of the players, has their own licensing procedures and their own insurance that you need to obtain. So I ended up at a law school joining a firm that I interned at where I'm at now, the law offices of Lloyd Remick and Zane Management, who had been practicing NFL agents since the late 1970s. Mm. Um, some of our clientele, you may know, we've represented people such as Patrick Mahomes, um, Taylor Heineke, uh, Aaron Jones, um, a couple different Philadelphia Eagles, Jerome Brown, Greg Ellis. Uh, so for as I'm growing in this career, I thought I'd primarily be involved with music, but my boss suggested I become an NFL agent. So I had to go to the players union. I had to submit an application similar to the bar exam. I had to take a test um, on the NFL collective bargaining agreement. It's a hundred. It's a multi hundred page document containing all the rules of the league, how contracts work, dress code, anything you can imagine. Uh, there also is a union document that governs the rules of agents what you can do, what you're allowed to do, what you're not allowed to do. Um, so you had to pass a test on that. I passed the test. I think the passing rate was 33% uh, oh for people in my class. So I was, I've been licensed to practice as an NFL agent since 2021. Um, and I've joined the firm and it helped out in a non-aging capacity with some of our other football clients. Uh, but I myself started representing players in 2021. And now the football landscape previously, you really only had to deal with the National Football League or the Arena Football League. Now there are leagues all over that people are becoming well aware of. There is, of course, the NFL. Uh, and I forgot to mention the Canadian Football League. Uh, so there's the NFL, the CFL, the United States Football League, the USFL. They play on NBC and Fox. Uh, the XFL, which plays during the wintertime, they play on ESPN. 
There's a European League of Football called the ELF that we've negotiated contracts with. The language barrier and the time zone difference is always fun to make sure to navigate. But, you know, we've done deals with teams in Poland. We've done teams with, uh, you know, in Germany. And then there's now two arena leagues. There's the National Arena League. There's the Indoor Football League. So you're not just dealing with the NFL because the NFL, there's 32 teams, there's 53 players per team. Um, so you have to, there's limited space and the top level guys always get to it. So sometimes you'll have players that need help negotiating a deal with these other leagues and we provide those services as well. Um, I know this is a very lengthy answer. Uh, so as far as NIL, NIL stands for um, name, image, and likeness, which is applicable to any collegiate athlete um, that plays at an NCAA school. Name, image, and likeness are deals for using the player's name, their image, or their likeness uh, in a marketing or other type of advertisement. Players are now being contacted by groups of uh, alumni, usually organizing themselves in a thing called a collective. These collectives then provide a, a payment to the player um, to use them in marketing and advertising, whether that be at a car dealership, uh, an autograph session, um, filming a commercial. And we help those players navigate those marketing deals as oftentimes they are being presented 10, 15, 20 page contracts and they're you know balancing their athletic obligations, their scholastic obligations their social obligations and they don't often have time the ability the skills or the resources to negotiate these deals so we provide those services as well um, to be registered as an nil agent you do not have to go to any sort of licensing body uh, like you would have to with the nfl there is no test you have to take however you do have to pass certain background checks with each state uh, mm -hmm. states have their own athlete agent laws that require you to submit an application. They run a background check on you. Um, and for each state that you practice in, just like the law, you need to be registered with that state as an athlete agent. So I'm currently practicing as an agent in uh, an NIL agent in the state and an NFL agent um, in several states across the country. And each time you do so, you must register with that. So it's a lot of background checks. It's a lot of continuing education and learning about the latest in the deals, the latest terms that people are trying to put into contracts that aren't often to the athlete's benefit. And to, of course, stay up to date because now the the football world and the sports and entertainment world in general have been really sort of trying to figure out in a post-COVID environment, what's the best way to go forward? There's been a large rush back to go to live events, to go to sporting events, to go to concerts. And now there's this huge boom. The problem is there's still, of course, people being left behind. And how do you deal left behind in the sense that there's a lot of entertainers, there's a lot of businesses that have had to close um, because they weren't able to survive. We've lost a lot of music venues um, despite some government efforts, whether that be federal government or state government to mm -hmm. assist these venues um we've seen recently like teams in some of these lesser leagues have folded um now with the nfl and covid and granting an extra year of eligibility to college athletes the nfl draft has been a big issue because sometimes um older guys that are there for six seven eight years are now coming into the draft so now older players are entering the league on um Rookie contracts, rookie contracts are contracts that are preset amounts. Again, that collective bargaining agreement I mentioned 
there is certain pages that say if you are drafted in this round at this spot, you're entitled to make this amount of money and you're not allowed to negotiate more. That was collectively bargained between the union and the and all the owners of the teams to ensure that a veteran players are able to have like a larger piece in the pie in in exchange for um you know their years of service and as well as the fact that when you're building a team from an owner's perspective the younger talent which often younger players get hurt younger players may not make the transition from college to nfl as well these teams aren't making a as large of a financial investment as much as the free market would normally allow by the rights of this draft so there are certain things that you always need to update on so i can't just say that you know for those that are looking to enter this industry that you go to college, you go to law school, technically to be an NFL agent, you don't need to go to law school. You just need to be able to show that you have comparable negotiating experience, like larger deals. Being a lawyer is very, very helpful to this, but it's not necessarily required. So it's not just simply you go to college, you go to law school, you get past it's it. You're constantly having to learn about it. You're constantly having to keep updated with um, the news of the day, whether it be deals, whether it be new regulations. Um, so it's it's a constant learning experience. It's a uh, experience that you have to like consistently monitor. So yes, there are certain prerequisites and certain education you need, but it, it never the education process of it never really stops. Mm. Very lengthy answer to that question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like like how long is usually like the process to come like a with the bar exam and all that stuff? Is that like last a couple of months or does it like how long is kind of like the process? In terms so of ordinarily, um, you go to law school for three or four years. If you're doing law school part time, it's usually four years part time, meaning you're able to have like a job to help you pay for school. Truthfully, to be a successful law student, um, it's a 60 hour week at minimum kind of commitment. Just if you want to be at the best position possible, some people do it unless some people take more. Um, so the whole process in total goes you have four years of college. Then you have three to four years of law school. In my case, I did it full time. So it took three. So now I've had seven years of schooling from the time I graduated from high school. And the bar exam is usually in the month of July. You graduate in May. So you have two months where you're essentially not working a job. So you're not really bringing income into your house. So you're building up, you know, money you've saved up or money from your student loans and you're living off that. And you wake up and you treat it just like another job. So you're working, again, 50 to 60 hours a week just studying for the bar exam. So all in all, you know, you have two months to do it. You're studying every day. Maybe you take a day off. Maybe you take two days off if, you, if you're really, really smart. But the bar exam process itself is eight to 10 weeks of 60-hour weeks of, of purely studying, taking practice exams, taking practice essays. Um, it's a very, very difficult process to go through that not a lot of people understand because people think mm -hmm. of it more as just like the SATs but really it's it, it's an ironic thing because in the bar exam you're learning about every area of law and then when you enter the profession you're expected to be an expert into like a specific niche area law there are very few lawyers who do what's called general practice I, I think in medicine a lot of people think that a doctor knows everything about everything, but doctors really, and just like lawyers, we're really specialized in a certain set area. And that's what we do most of the day. Like myself, practice entertainment lawyer, I rarely deal with any criminal matters. And oftentimes I wouldn't feel comfortable helping somebody through a very serious criminal matter just because I'm not, that's not my area of expertise. But with the bar exam, 
you need to know a little bit about everything. It's not open book. It's a three day session of, you know, eight hours of testing. You get like an hour break in the middle. So it's a very rigorous. It's a very comprehensive. It's a it's a very, very frankly scary exam to take. Yeah, that's crazy. I didn't expect it to be kind of that long of a process. I thought it was kind of like maybe at least maybe two weeks of a process, but I didn't expect it to be like eight to 10 weeks, like over like kind of like a bar exam type of thing. A lot of people feel the need to take actually, and I did this as well. You take classes on how to take the bar exam. So you sit and you watch videos or you actually attend, you know, live in person sessions. It's a whole, it's a whole thing unto itself. There have been talks amongst the legal profession and really kind of has COVID had this, it's it, it's really, is the bar exam totally necessary if lawyers aren't really practicing the type of, you know, general law that, that might have when the bar exam was first invented? What does it really test? Does it test your ability to be a good lawyer? Does it test your ability to memorize, regurgitate and do these things? Um, there are certain, you know, equity concerns with people that don't actually have the resources to pay thousands of dollars for one of these prep courses, um, you know, because you're thinking you're going to law school, you're not really earning money, nobody's really going to pay you as a summer intern. So you're already on your last dime. And then all of a sudden, you know, not only do you have to feed yourself and, and make sure your rent is paid in whatever city you're going to law school in, because mm -hmm. there's very few online law schools that I I don't think there's any, to be frank. So you're incurring housing and other expenses that other schooling, you may not necessarily have to do so. Um, so the bar exam is, is a very, very lengthy process. We'll see if it continues. But yeah, it's I, I think it's a lot of times a lot of people don't, until they really hear it, they don't really appreciate just how stressful it can be. Yeah. Like from what I see, like my one of my favorite shows is Law and Order SVU. So like when I watch that show, like there's like, like I like that show is literally the only education I learn in terms of lawyer or detective and however that system works. Like I literally knew nothing about it until I watched that show and I immediately became obsessed. But like, what type of cases do you often see as like an attorney? Do you really see like the same type of cases or is there like different types of types of kind of cases you see? So as an entertainment lawyer, uh, I don't really see what what you're thinking of cases like in the law and order SVU. You see the, you know, the prosecutor, the defense lawyer, the judge. Mm -hmm. um, those are what's called litigators as there are entertainment litigators that will go into court. They'll give a grand opening statement. They'll cross examine witnesses. They'll do things you see traditionally on TV. What I do is I primarily uh, negotiate contracts. Uh, I help people navigate the world of intellectual property law and making sure that the TV shows they create, the music they make, uh, their perception of an idea for a company is protected legally. So that's navigating uh, U.S. copyright law, which isn't just a thing that people have to put on the beginning of a YouTube video that says, I don't own this, all all rights belong to their respective owners, but it's really making sure that it's registered and then enforcing that right. The second thing I do in addition uh, to the copyright and contracts is uh, trademarks. Trademarks you probably have seen, they can be logos, they can be colors, they can be smells in certain instances. When you see a logo or a name, you'll usually see like a little R with a circle under it that indicates that it's a registered trademark with the United States Patent and Trademark Office. Ironically enough, not a lot of people know this. I I, I feel like a <laughs> I feel like a teacher, but 
the right to a trademark actually comes from the U.S. Constitution. It's mm -hmm. a constitutional right. Uh, the Constitution has a line in it that says the government has the power to institute limited protections uh, for a set limited amount of time um, for copyright and trademarks. So copyright and trademark aren't things that last forever and ever. And the second you get registered, um, it's all well and good. You have to maintain it for trademarks. You have to make sure that nobody's infringing upon your brand. Um, so that means using a similar name in, in a, in a space, you know, McDonald's versus whack Donald's. It sounds similar. It's a trademark infringement for copyright. It lasts for a limited time. And that's why you hear about things like the public domain, um, when a certain amount of time has passed, things no longer protected by copyright and they go in the public domain. That's why there can be a Winnie the Pooh horror movie because Winnie the Pooh is a, is a very, very old piece. Mm -hmm. um, and when it fell in the public domain, Disney didn't have the right to sue anybody for using it. Um, so copyright, trademarks, and contracts are things I do. And then I also help people make corporations. So when you hear the letters LLC, we help form those companies. We make sure that the internal documents that sets out the rules of how the company operates, you know, if we want to buy a thing, how much, do, how many votes do we need to have? If we want to hire a CEO, what's that hiring process like? Um, so we help with that as well. And then just we provide general entertainment and business advice. Um, I, with my experience, like managing my own musical group, know what it's like to have to deal with, you know, booking concerts, with booking tours, with dealing with graphic designers to make sure your album art's correct. And uh, my boss, like Remick, who's the founder of the firm, is the longtime manager for Grover Washington Jr., who uh, wrote the song Just the Two of Us with Bill Withers. You know, he was on tour buses and bunks going to venues, you know, held, he has this funny story about how one time they went on a tour in Japan and he was there to just make sure that, you know, Grover got paid at the end of the night and that everything went off relatively as a hitch. However, as he's walking by, he hears a saxophone on the radio that sounds a lot like Grover. And now this is in Japan and he knows for a fact that Grover's music isn't out in Japan. What he encountered was it was somebody impersonating Grover, playing Grover's song and not paying Grover properly for it. So Grover put all this work into making the song, to writing it, hours in the studio, hours perfecting his craft and being a great saxophone player. And here was someone trading off of Grover's material and saying it was his own. So while Lloyd is, you know, dealing with the concert venues, he also has to be a lawyer and make sure that this that Grover either is properly paid or that this other infringing person can no longer profit off this off of Grover's material by using it without his permission. Mm -hmm. So we we blend a little bit of like the straight legal advice, the suit and tie stuff with the practical business advice that we've experienced, you know, in our own respective, you know, careers in the music industry, which can also apply to certain things. You know, we represent filmmakers, uh, actors, models uh olympic boxers so we really like to think that we help um those with god-given talents mm -hmm. be able to protect and grow their businesses yeah like it's just like i feel like it's like with copywriting i feel like it's like gotten like worse over time and everything like hasn't gotten like worse in 2023 or do you think it got better so I think with copyright where everything really started to go wrong unfortunately was the invention of the internet with the internet, people thought that they should be able to have access to any material at any time for free. I think the two big issues that face um, 
the you know in copyright is piracy so illegal movie streaming sites illegal music sites um that allow people to view this material for free which takes off you know um the money and it may not seem to the you know person that you know is struggling you know why in the world do i gotta pay fifteen dollars to go to the movie theater i gotta pay seven bucks for this popcorn i gotta pay 20 for this mm-hmm. well you know if we want these big big budget productions if and even if we want smaller productions and encourage people to you know go into these fields which don't have steady paychecks which don't oftentimes have health insurance um you know and you're just grind as an artist and a creator you're grinding and grinding and grinding and hope for the one big hit you know meanwhile you're starving without having protections like copyright and allowing people to to pirate and steal people's stuff without money, just the industry would fall apart. So I think it's gotten worse in 2023. I think that people think that they are entitled to view things for free, that it's just all big companies that they're taking it from. And oftentimes it's not, it's really smaller creators. Um, One such example is that Scarlett Johansson had a clause in her Marvel contract that gave her certain bonuses. If that, uh, her solo Black Widow movie that Marvel put out and Disney put out reached certain box office numbers in, in physical theaters. Well, Disney elected to release it on streaming. So Scarlett was not entitled by the terms of her contract to receive certain box office things because the box office numbers were zero because the movie theaters were closed. Mm-hmm. So being able to have those contracts and being able to protect you know, uh, certain copyright rights, whether it be copyright granted by contract or just normal copyrights are important. Um, we also see a growth in in true crime stories where people that have been the victims of heinous crimes are not being properly paid or being paid pennies for their stories. In certain instances, um, the perpetrators themselves are getting deals um and they're being paid lots of money while those that have been affected by their crimes haven't been there there are certain laws that mandate that those who perpetrate crimes if they do wish to sell a book a film a tv series a podcast about their experiences a good amount of those profits have to go back to pay restitution to the victims um but we've also turned turned crime perpetrators and celebrities and we give them stories whether it be the fire festival documentaries whether it be um you know the the swindlers and all these other people we see that growing now which of course takes away the market for those that are putting efforts into creative things so i think that people are looking for a to circumvent copyright law and life rights law and and right of publicity to sell these true crime stories uh and then secondly people are stealing that content like you'll see even on tiktok now people just wholesale put up clips of movies and the comments will be wow, I got to watch this movie for free just in bits and pieces. Um, And for copyright creators, the system that they have to enforce the copyrights isn't isn't either financially accessible. You know, when you're a lawyer evaluating a case, you're either paid up front, whether it be a flat fee or by, you know, the amount of time it takes you to work on a matter based on an hourly rate. Um, or you're taking a percentage of of the damages that you're able to you're able to argue for. Um, but when it's someone that is just uploading clips from, you know, for lack of a better word, their mom's basement, 
a lawyer really isn't going to take on that case because there isn't money to earn back to make it worth their time because the lawyers, you know, as I said, have to pay rent, feed their families. So if you're a small time creator and your work is getting pirated or stolen, um, you see it a lot in the hip hop industry, too, with people taking instrumentals and not paying the people that made the instrumentals. So you're not oftentimes going to find a lawyer to do it. And the next thing you have to do is essentially play what I call uh, whack-a-mole, where if you see an infringing content on a TikTok, on a YouTube, you have to fill out a form that all websites are required to have. It's called the DMCA, uh, the Digital Millennium Copyright Act. And once you fill out those forms, you can take down the infringing act. The other party, the person that got their the video or whatever taken down, they have a chance to respond. But all that person needs to do is create another account, use a different email address, use a different address, and they can upload the video again. So as a creator, you're just, you find an infringing video, you take it down. You see it pop up again, you take it down. And now instead of taking the time to create the next thing or work on marketing for your current, uh, your current creation that you think makes money. You're just spending all of your time or you're having members of your team spending certain time just taking these videos down. So the state of copyright law in 2023, um, there's been some wins in court. Um, there's one such, I'm sure you're a fan. Well, I'm not sure, but Ed Sheeran recently won a copyright infringement lawsuit um, of a person who accused him of taking a feel of a song that's not the way copyright law is supposed to work it's supposed to be like identifiable melodies lyrics uh structures of songs so there are still bad actors out there that think that they could put something out and essentially hold somebody hostage um you know people are understanding the importance of crediting people on the internet um but really i think the biggest issue that faces the entertainment industry at large is that there is uh, what I call a race to the bottom. People think the entertainment industry is very glamorous. They want to do it. So essentially, everybody's racing to the bottom of, to devalue their work, the bottom of value. So they'll give away music for free. They'll say, come to my concert for free. Watch my movie for free. So you're expected as a, as a creative to shell out all this money to get this stuff out there. And then you're saying to the world, this product that I'm trying to sell you has no value. And then people just expect that it's a music producer that gives away all of his great instrumentals. And then it turns into, um, I'll tell you another story. Little Nas X puts out old town road, little Nas X paid for the instrumental of that song for $15. Um, and luckily he had the, you know, the ethics and, um, the morality to make sure that the person that made that beat was compensated, but he didn't have to do that legally. He got a license for, I can use it forever. So while little Nas X and his record label could have profited off of old town road, you know, millions upon millions of dollars, the person that made the songs, little Nas X wrote the lyric and some of the melody to it, obviously but the main instrumental he could have just got paid fifteen dollars and had no recourse to it and, and that's what i kind of think when i'm talking about uh, the race to the bottom people think that it's okay that you don't have to pay money to see music that all the concerts should be free and only the big time artists with the pyrotechnics and everything else are the ones that should be getting paid um recently the smaller concert industry here in philadelphia the bare minimum for a price that it's you know 
a backyard concert was five dollars now it's getting raised to 15 and people are upset about that because it is more money out their pocket but at the same time you have to compensate these creatives for providing a skill and providing a product and providing a service that they the, the attendees themselves can't provide because they don't have that necessary skill or talent just like you wouldn't expect a plumber to come in and, and do work for free uh, you know artists shouldn't be expected to give work for free either so um, again another lengthy answer but it's you're asking very good questions and hitting on some key points that i'm very passionate about so i think it's gotten worse i think that one solution is to kind of do what the NFL Players Association does and artists need to band together and use their collective bargaining power um, to make sure that they're being compensated properly. One such group is the Writers Guild, which is uh, a union of of television writers and, and movie writers. They are on strike now because there are two big things that have an existential threat to their way of life. The first is artificial intelligence created work, which the companies don't have to pay nearly as much as an active writer to do proper compensation they deserve. And I applaud the writer's field for sticking to their guns and sticking to the strike. Um, it is, it is very, very important, you know, not just that I in my legal practice represent creatives. Um, but I think just generally for society at large, if we don't value the people that are making the things that allow us escape from the day-to-day -day monotony of life that, there's a chance we lose it or we have watered down things that people aren't great. Like the reason why a show like law and order SVU can be so successful is that it's not just that they're oftentimes ripping things from the headlines, even though they say they're not. Um, but it's the great writers, it's the lighters, it's the, the directors, it's the people that work in craft services that really make it there. And if we start to put the focus on these larger companies, rather than the people that are actually making the work, um, we're not going to have much left to do. There's never been a greater demand for content. People are watching anything at any time and anywhere. There is, whether it be a thing like this, a podcast, whether it be a, a TikTok video, people are really looking that out. People think that they should do that. And I encourage everybody to chase their dream. Everybody has a right to a dream. Mm -hmm. Everybody should pursue it just at the same time when you're making a creative business and you are pursuing your dream there, you have to treat it like a business. You need to protect yourself legally. You need to make sure that you have certain protections because the worst thing that could happen is if you're trying to build this rocket ship of this career, of this project, of this TV show, this podcast, this music, if you're not doing the things to make sure that you protect it, and then all of a sudden it blows up, you're dealing with much, much worse headaches. Um, and the worst thing that could happen is could the rocket ship could explode, mm -hmm. you know, like in the worst way, not in the exploding and, and going into the stratosphere. But, you know, just we've seen it happen with a lot of different people, a lot of, you know, one hit wonders where they put out something. It goes great. They live off that, but they don't have the proper paperwork. And again, Old Town Road could have been like that. Like one of the biggest songs we've ever seen in the history of music. Uh, it was bought. It was a $15 beat. It took uh, uh, it technically infringed the copyright of a, of a nine inch nail song that, you know, could have brought it down. And luckily, everybody in the in the involved in that in those business dealings understood the value of it and understood that we want to make this work. But if one party decide whether it be the producer held up for more money or Nine Inch Nails demanded that they take the song down or they took all the royalties or if 
Little Nas X's record label said, this is too much of a legal headache for us to deal with it. Um, we're not going to deal with it. It could have been disastrous. And all the things that Little Nas X was able to do in terms of growing his career could have all been for naught. And I think that sometimes, I'm not saying that the story is like, you can always hire lawyers to figure out easier. I'm saying it's much, much easier when you do those things in advance. Mm. Um, so it's very, very important to have all those protections. Yeah, like, I was, like, because, like, with the Ed Sheeran case, like, he, like, of course, he pleaded not guilty to that thing, which was, I'm sure, like, it, he was, like, I'm sure for him, he must have, like, been, like, okay, this is a waste of time. I didn't steal this things and the car knows it. And the media is, like, oh, backlashing him for using this thing, even though probably is not true. And that is kind of, like, the worst thing about being an artist that's in, like, the public eye, like, like Lil Nas X or big artists like other um Lil Nas X or Ed Sheeran, it's just like the press will go ju- this very juicy about those stories. They'll love to get those stories to get a lot of attention on their outlet, and that is like even though like some people might copyright and don't know how things work. I know when I first started out, I didn't know how that got things work, and that's okay because people are so tender to learn, of course. But you know, like with copyright, it can like not be bad on you but it's like it's kind of bad on an artist as well it's too because of the copyright uh copyright can be used as either a sword or a shield it just depends on what side of the battle you're on uh copyright can be used as a sword for bad actors to steal material or in ed sheeran's case tie him up in litigation for something that isn't quite i wouldn't consider it frivolous but I would consider it, you know, as you said, like, I don't think Ed Sheeran went out to intentionally copy. Um, I believe it was Let's Get It On by Marvin Gaye. Uh, and I don't believe that he was intentionally trying to steal that material. Um, and it could be used as a shield to say that, like, hey, I put all this time, this effort. Like, if people were sharing clips of us speaking right now on the podcast and, you know, the people that want to maybe advertise on your podcast or seeing it elsewhere they're like why in the world would i advertise on kylie's great podcast i could just go pay the person stealing it because they're getting more views um so it it really just depends on what side of the aisle you're on i can't say that it's bad in some instances yeah it, it's not as helpful to artists and sometimes it's very very helpful to artists but it's just like any type of law you know it, it, if good actors use it for the right reasons it'd be great if bad actors use it for bad reasons, it could be bad. So copyright is a thing that we'll always be discussing. I maybe as time goes on, we'll revisit the copyright law, which hasn't been really looked at since the seventies that, you know, royalty rates have changed in music. Uh, but the actual idea of the copyright law itself hasn't really been there. We should maybe see it around the time. I forget the exact year, but Disney, as a company is always kind of leading the charge and updating the copyright laws because Mickey Mouse, which was created like in the early 1900s, a steamboat Willie each time that Mickey Mouse was set to expire where it's essentially the, the, the law that holds all of Disney stuff together. Every time that's set to expire, they talk and they lobby Congress to, uh, get those laws changed. So maybe we'll see that change as Disney comes up and we'll have a greater public discussion about what these laws really entail. How can we use these laws to better protect artists? How can we use these laws to better make sure that companies are making the proper investments in this material? How do we make sure that bad actors are essentially trading on counterfeit goods um, are properly prosecuted? Uh, and how do we make sure that, you know, as we see this growth in songwriter lawsuits, like we talked about, 
how do we able to discern what's legitimate and what isn't legitimate? Mm, exactly. And like, thank you so much, Stephen, for taking the time to come on. Like you're, I've been dying. You're welcome. You. And you're like, welcome. Since I, like my family told me about you, like about everything you're doing. So I really appreciate you taking the time. I know you are a very busy person. And I was very happy to be here. Thank you for your insightful questions. And as uh, Dom from Fast and Furious says, uh, family is everything. Mm-hmm, definitely definitely <laughs> is everything i'm so happy me and you were able to connect and thank god for social media for that and everything i'm so glad in today's world yeah social media like i know our parents didn't really have social media and like back in the day like the 70s 80s around that time so i really <laughs> appreciate you taking the time Stephen. it was great meeting you and catch out with you and that we'll definitely do this again again soon thank you so much thanks for having me on kylie really appreciate it of course